Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get to Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game... We're going to uh, give you some movie stuff, uh, what we've seen lately, thoughts, some recommends, and then we'll, we'll, we'll hop into it. Um, Ian, what have you, you, you been watching? What's going on in your world? Well, last, last weekend I finally did a movie that had been recommended to me by uh, a friend and neighbor. You've met him. You remember Ian O'Donnell? I, yes, I do. Yeah, good people. Um, I haven't talked to him about what I'm going to say about this movie, so if he happens to listen to this episode, you know, he'll, he'll figure it out if I don't talk to him sooner, <laughs> but um, he is a big fan of Singles, the Cameron Crowe movie, and you know, it's really awesome because I, I was still in the UK uh, in the early 90s, and so I don't have much of a sense of Seattle, you know outside of of going to shows there in the mid-2000s, and that was really like my first big exposure to Seattle. So seeing Seattle on film in the 90s was, was, really, was really cool. It was, it was awesome to see a different side and a different time in the city, and I, I just love seeing Seattle on film. I don't think we see it enough on film, honestly. But uh, Singles as a movie is fucking terrible. Like, awful. Just fucking awful i i think we we talked a bit about this on our fast times at ridgemont high episode um the cameron crowe i think we came to the agreement or at least maybe i'm projecting but cameron crowe is definitely a better writer than he is a director i feel like he's got as a director he's gotten lucky you know there's jerry Maguire, there's almost famous uh say anything Liz is a, a really big fan of Elizabethtown, and on, over the last few years, it's definitely been, I know you guys did a great episode on it on Below Freezing, it's definitely been growing on me over the last few years, and I've actually been cooling to uh, Almost Famous, because, I don't know, about six months ago, maybe a little less, I watched the director's cut of Almost Famous, and it doesn't help. Like, it's, it's no. not, the, the director's cut is not good at all. And it kind of like we put could me do, off almost famous. We could do a whole side podcast about how if if you're going to release a copy of a movie with the director's cut, then you you should be obligated to also attach the theatrical cut because just because there's a director's cut does not mean that it is somehow better. Uh, the almost fa- the, what is it? What is it called? Untitled? Is that the or the Which bootleg is, cut? Oh, I know. It's such pretentious bullshit. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, 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 I, uh, it, it, it's like 40 minutes of just, uh. yeah, well, also, and here's the deal, I was, um, I was doing something else, so I was, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna throw an audio commentary on, so I was like, I'll throw the audio commentary on for the director's cut of Almost Famous, and here's the rundown of, like, the first 30 minutes of it, because honestly, I turned it off and just watched the movie, is it's him and his mom, and then like three or four other production guys, and the whole first half hour is her going, oh my god, you really shot this where it happened, and oh my god, you really did this, and you really did this, and it's him like, yeah, mom, yeah, I did, and it's all like very self-congratulatory, and then 
every couple of minutes, the four guys in the background will like laugh or clap to remind you, yeah, Cameron Crowe's a genius. Yay! That kind of shit. It's one of those. <laughs> and all sure. it's honestly, it's kind of put me off almost famous a little bit. Yeah. Un- so that, sorry. That was why I, I don't, I didn't mean to go down a ragging on Cameron Crowe rabbit hole, but that's oh, no, no worries. Sometimes you just, sometimes you got to get these things off your chest, man. And you Cameron Crowe, yeah. Not a good director. Stick to writing, bro. Fair. That's fair. Um, I uh I, I watched a movie last night that I think we've we've talked about. I know I know you've seen it, and uh in, in one way or another we've it's been mentioned on the show, and so uh I was I was gifted some some money for my birthday recently, and uh I I went to, to Zavi as one does, and I purchased some items as you do. And so I, I purchased that, that new, uh, the 4k release of crash, the, the Cronenberg, uh, film. Ah, that's a movie. That is something. It's, yeah, it's a lot. I don't know. Like, I, I think, I mean, I think the performances are all really interesting and really nuanced. And, it, but I think what it, what it really left me with is just this, like this, that, that world probably exists of people who are, somehow turned on by this this sense of of near death and 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 auto accidents and it's it's a it's a really interesting world that they set up um and everybody's really good in it but it's also like i also don't know yeah i i was so it it ended last night we were just kind of like huh okay okay i mean it's it's peak cronenberg in my mind, I think he is, it feels like, I almost liken it to uh, the Irishman from Scorsese, which I know is divided opinions, but when you look at the Irishman at the, I obviously it's not the end of his career, but towards the end of Scorsese's career, it's, it almost feels like everything was leading, everything else that he'd done was leading to this moment, and I kind of got that feeling when I watched Crash. Oh, see, like, I, this I would, all, all of I like the disagree. collective. Oh, really? Well, on, only only because I'm so fond of a history of violence, and that I think that one was so much more, I, commercially successful too. Um, and it's not. I'm not saying that Crash is a bad movie. I think it's a fine movie that probably will need to be rewatched now that I have a better understanding of what I'm getting into. Um, but yeah, that was, that was last night's viewing and it just kind of left me in like a, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I would see why you would say that about a history of violence, but a history of violence to me is almost like the beginning of something new for Cronenberg. It's like a new well, phase in too. his career where like crash feels like this is the, the coda for all the other batshit crazy stuff that I've done in the years leading up to this, like all the crazy, <sighs> you know, like, uh, indie films that he was doing in Canada in the 70s up through like Videodrome Dead Ringers Naked Lunch it just it, Crash feels like a culmination of of those sort of themes that he was exploring yeah I, I, I don't disagree at all I just uh, yeah yeah so yeah just a uh, interesting flick now, Spader's great in it though right yeah he I, yeah I I mean honest I I love uh Elias Cotius just in general I like him and stuff and 
Uh, obviously, Deborah Kara Unger, who you know we, we mentioned during our Fincher ranking, and Holly Hunter is good, and Rosanna Arquette. Like our five, the five people we follow through the movie are all really interesting and really committing to what they're to what they're doing. Um, yeah, I got no, I got no bones to pick with the act. I got it's so funny. That's the thing is, I, I got no bones to pick with most of what's done. I think it's just such an interesting story that I'm still kind of left in like, huh? I, I don't know. Yeah, it makes me, I've never read a J.G. Ballard novel, but after seeing Crash and High Rise, I'm like, maybe maybe I should get, I'm such a huge Polinick fan, and I'm not saying that they're necessarily cut from the same cloth, but they explore the kind of darker themes that a lot of people are afraid to to delve yeah, into. for sure. And so, I, yeah, I, get, I definitely got to read me some J.G. Ballard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, you have, do you have anything else before we get to, to recommends? Because I, I got oh, man, one else? more thing to bring up. Oh, I did watch a great little 70s movie. Um, I don't know. It just kept popping up on my radar. I swear to God, I listened to like three episodes of Marin all in like close, like all within like a week or two of each other where somebody or he mentioned uh, California Split and then I saw somebody on Twitter talking about it. So I was like, ah, shit, I got I to do it. I got to knock this Altman off of my list. And it's, yeah. uh, uh, who's it, George Stevens? Or no, sorry, George Segal. And um, and Elliot Gould, a couple of like degenerate sort of deadbeat gamblers, and it kind of just follows them for a few days. Oh, it's it's just one of those great '70s character study sort of meandering look at this seedy world of gambling and the people that inhabit it and what it means to be addicted to gambling. I mean, Elliot Gould is a fucking knockout in it. He is incredible i mean he's elliot gould well i mean what do you want he's great in fucking everything even yeah. in shit that's yeah. not good he he's one of these people that elevates something that he's in and makes it better but it was also one of those movies like mccabe and mrs miller it's one of those movies that sort of pioneered altman's thing which is the overlapping dialogue and recording everything and it really yep. an immersive experience i it's great i think you're i think you're really gonna like it and it's on prime as of when we're recording oh. this Good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I've heard. Actually, it's so funny because I was listening to a totally, probably different, different podcast. But somebody was talking about the movie. Brought up, they brought up Mississippi Grind, which I haven't seen, but they definitely go Mississippi Grind just stole California Split and and oh, just absolutely. Just that's not to say that Mississippi Grind isn't good. I mean, it's a good movie. Mendelssohn especially is great in it. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty much beat for beat yeah. California Split. Well, nice. Um. So I, I have one more movie to bring up, and it's definitely not my recommend. Um, and I, I will probably never watch this movie again, but not because that it was a bad film. Uh, it's just it's kind of harrowing, and it's just a depressing movie. And so uh, last week when my, my recommend was Promising Young Woman. Um, oh, sorry. It was, yeah, Promising Young Woman. Uh, uh, last Sunday we watched Pieces of a Woman, which is also on Netflix and um, is... Have you seen this yet? Have you watched it? It's it was on my radar last weekend and I didn't get to it, so I I bumped it to this weekend. Who knows? Maybe I'll get to it, maybe I won't, because I've definitely got to do my entire weekend is built around right now anyway, watching the can cut of Southland Tales, which is finally available. Thank you very <laughs> much, Arrow Video. I have been waiting fifteen years for this. I you and I've never seen it at all, but I, I know the the tale, so so enjoy it, buddy. Um Promising Young Woman, or uh, God damn it, I did it again. Pieces of a Woman is not a bad movie. 
Um, and for for if, if you've seen the trailer, they, they make it pretty explicit that this is the story of a, of a, a couple who were what, what was they were having a child and something goes wrong and uh, uh, they're, they're they're looking to get some kind of justice for the the uh, the gross incompetence of what happens the day that she's giving birth. Um, uh, I'm not very familiar with Vanessa Kirby, but she does a great job in the movie. Um, Ellen Burstyn is in the movie, plays her mom. She gives a really nice knockout performance. So, th- But there's two things I wanted to mention about the movie, um, just in general, because I just I find them interesting. So one is that the like basically like the first 25 minutes of the movie is all one take. Um, that's not right from the top of the movie, but basically there's the night that she's giving birth. And everything feels like it's happening in real time. It's, it's all one take. And it's, I got to say, like, this is one of those, I, I feel like such a, like a, just a pretentious piece of shit for saying this. But, like, if you have kids or you're uh, expecting kids soon in your life, you you might not want to watch this movie. Um, it is, I mean, I mean, to say that Melissa and I were in tears before the title card came up, because because it's a really long open before we get the title of the movie, um, it is fucking devastating. And then, I mean, you get past the really hard to watch stuff, but then it's just like watching this couple and this family and this woman try to deal with the aftermath of the situation, and it's it's just it's it's crushing. It's it's just fucking it's heartbreaking. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention though is um, it really sucks that Shia LaBeouf is such a prick in real life because he is so good in this movie. He is like, like I guarantee you Oscar nomination for this movie. If he hadn't been a prick and, and like allegedly, allegedly, I don't, again, I don't know what's been proven or what, but um, for, for like beating his ex-girlfriend. I now I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there, and I don't want to take anything away from what a prick he is in real life. But you're saying he's really good in this. But are you are you saying he's really is is he actually really good in this, or is it like when everybody lost their minds about how quote unquote good he was in Honey Boy, which is no, see it, I, it's I, not I, that it's not that. Let's calm down. Honey Boy is not that good. No, no, I th- I I thought Honey Boy was fine, and I thought he I thought he was good in it um but i mean and i i can't say that i'm a shia labeouf aficionado i i can't say i've seen everything he's done but what i've seen this is my favorite performance of his i mean hands down there are some there's moments where he gets like really upset but it's very justified you see some really tender moments with him um it's it's just i I don't know it it really you know it it just it I don't know what else to say besides the fact that, you know, had had he just, you know, been less of a fucking asshole in real life, I you know, I think he'd be on his way to his first Oscar nomination. Maybe not a win, but I I, I think he's really good at it. I think he's re- and I think I think you'll hear Vanessa Kirby and Ellen Burstyn around award season. I think there's a good chance of that happening. Um but it's just it's just a shame. It's just a shame because he's I, I he's got real talent and he just fucking squanders it. Yeah, it seems like he's done everything in his power to sabotage himself. Yeah, it's a bummer. But I, I but I love Vanessa Kirby. I think she's great. She was just in uh, her. I guess her breakout would be 
the last mission impossible she was in that and she's fantastic in that i don't know you didn't you didn't see the new one right fallout yeah did you see fallout yeah, i've seen them all yeah oh, okay yeah, yeah fallout is fucking great right I like, dude, even the John, I like all the Mission Impossibles for what they are. I, I totally, I, it's a franchise I totally dig. Yeah, man, it is, it is my, my guilty pleasure. Like, I know I shouldn't like these movies, but I just can't help myself. I did, I did like just the little bit of research on Vanessa Kirby and uh, she was in, uh, I, so, I, somewhere on the West End, a production of Streetcar Named Desire. She played Stella when it was, uh, Gillian Anderson was playing Blanche and Ben Foster was playing Stanley. Oh man, what a cast! I know, Fuck, right? I, I would. Oh man, I would. I love Ben. I lo- all those names. It's great. Of, of I think, course, I, I want to see there, that. That sounds amazing. There might be a recorded version of it. I don't know if you can rent it or, or what, but they, you know, big big theaters tend to do that. But I'm not, I'm not sure how how that all works. But yeah, man, I would love to see Ben Foster do that role. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're you know we're we're a hefty way into this podcast. So I think maybe, maybe we should move on to recommends. What do you, what do you yeah, think? We, sh- we should, we should probably do that. I just, I was just so excited to, to talk to you today. I don't know, man. I'm just, <laughs> you know, just spool it out. Let, let well, it just it, take I mean, its course. I I would like to say, I, I'm, I'm just going to put it out, out into the ether that uh, the first half of this podcast will be much more engaged than I will say the second half of the podcast is probably going to be. Yeah, you're tipping your hand a little early there, but, Oh, okay. Uh, do you want me to go first? Yeah, please do. Okay. Um, so, uh, my recommend this week, I, I, I tend to pick either the like, really like, you know, like Oscar buzz movies or like, this is really good. And then sometimes I just pick movies that I just flat out entertain the fuck out of me. And, uh, I want to say it was like Monday night. Uh, Melissa wanted to watch something that we didn't have to overly think too hard about. And so we, we watched, Ready or not. Have you seen that? I have seen Ready or Not, and it was a lot more fun than I was expecting. Y- yeah, absolutely. Um and, and I didn't know I, I didn't know how far it was gonna um maybe lean towards the, the horror aspect of it. I, I realized it was supposed to be kind of kind of funny too. I didn't realize it was gonna be as funny as it actually as it was. Um The last so, five minutes are fucking amazing. I oh mean, yeah genuinely great um the the quick rundown of the plot is uh uh samara weaving plays grace and uh, she is marrying into this this uh family that has a lot of traditions they have like a board game empire and um on the night of a wedding um as as you're as you're being welcomed into the family you have to play a game and there's there's one card that you pull and if you pull it it's like fuck it's the worst and she pulls this card she pulls hide and seek and she basically has now been tasked to uh just don't get caught by before dawn because if you do we're gonna kill you um and there's a reason that there's a reason that gets spelled out as to why they have to do it and uh her husband who has sort of been like like uh trying to be like you know keep his distance from his family only really came back for the wedding. Now he's roped back into it. He's trying to help her. And um, it's really just this kind of crazy over-the-top romp. Um, and I, I'm so glad. I feel like a movie like this could theoretically be toned down a lot and made PG-13. They go fucking full board, R-rated, dropping fucks all over the movie. It is so gory. And to, yeah, the last five minutes of the movie, it just like reaches new pinnacles of like just just copious amounts of, of gore. Um, but it's 
it is it was so much fun i mean it just it's and it, it's it's an hour and a half it just clips right right along i don't know man it's i just had such a blast watching this movie and like and, but and as absurd as the whole thing kind of is everybody's selling it like everybody is believable in what they're doing i i just we had a fucking blast Henry Cernzy, right, as the as the dad. Amazing. Yep. Like he he's kinda I mean, I'm sure he never disappeared. I'm sure he kept working. Not that I've looked at his IMDB or anything like that, but I I love Henry Cernzy. He's in two of my favorite nineties movies of all time. Uh Clear and Present Danger and and Mission Impossible. And I'm super excited that supposedly he's coming back in the next two Mission Impossibles to like bring that character of Kittredge full circle. But that, he's, that I got, funny. I got so excited when I saw him in that. And then he popped up as the dad in Sharp Objects as well. The HBO miniseries. Oh. It's just, it's great to see a really talented character actor like that make a comeback. Well, and same with, uh, in a way, Andy McDowell. Like, I know we talked about her a little bit last week when I said we watched Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I thought she was really good in this too. Yeah, she, yeah she's not bad. I, I don't know, man. I, I, you know, we... We watched a fair amount of movies, you know, in the last few days, and uh, uh, this was just every most of what I watched was fine. You know, I'm not, I didn't like I, there were there weren't a whole bunch of stinkers in the in the bunch, but this was just such a blast. I I do this is like like pop this fucker on like like pop it on like this is a perfect Saturday night Friday night movie, and just just enjoy it. Just enjoy the hell out of a, a fun fucking movie. <laughs> I mean, her laugh. I don't. I don't I'm not going to ruin the end for anybody who hasn't seen it. But her <laughs> laugh at the end needs to go down in history as one of the all-time great movie laughs. It's, it's fucking incredible. Like the the mix of, I don't know. There's so much going on in that moment. Like the the the, the despair. I mean, she kind of like gives up at the same time. She's. It's. I don't know, man. Without. I can't. I can't say too much more about that laugh without giving it away. But yeah, it's incredible. It's one of the greatest laughs I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so ready or not, uh, quick watch. I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Ian, what do you got? Well, we talked about Shia LaBeouf and and controversy just a few minutes ago, and I'm going to kind of stay in that lane of controversial public figures. And I know I'm not going to win any fans saying this, so I've got, I've got something that before Louis C.K. was canceled... Uh, if that's even what it was, and my my recommended no way excuses his behavior, but before he got canceled, he created one of the greatest pieces of television that I have ever seen. And I'm not talking about the Louis show that's on FX. I'm talking about the show that he wrote, produced, independently financed, did the whole thing. The works it's called Horace and Pete's was originally available on his website. Uh. I think it's been on Hulu for a little while now. That's that's where we're watching it. But Harrison Pete's is uh, it's it's theater. I mean, it's right up your alley. You're watching pretty much actual theater, just a couple of sets, actors at the top of their game, just doing their thing. Um, cast is cast is fucking incredible. You've got obviously Louis C.K. is in it, Steve Buscemi, Edie Falco, Stephen Wright, Kurt Metzger, Alan Alda, Jessica Lang, Tom Noonan. Uh, Laurie Metcalf pops up in one episode, which is one of the greatest monologues I've ever seen performed, is Laurie Metcalf just knocking it fucking out of the park in episode three. Um, 
So basically, the the plot is is uh, there's Horace and Pete's played by Louis C.K. and Steve Buscemi. They are one in a long line of Horace and Pete's who run this bar in Brooklyn that's been there for a hundred years, and it's just about their their daily struggles. Their sister. Uh, Sylvie, played by Yudi Falco, find out she's got cancer, and so she wants to sell the bar because the the airspace above the bar is worth more than the bar itself. It's like they could sell, get in and out, so that somebody could put up a high rise. You know, they could sell for like six million dollars, and all their problems will be solved. Uh, but, yeah, but they're bucking against the loyal sort of drunks that they have, and Alan Alda as Uncle Pete's. Alan Alda is sensational in this. I mean, he has some really breathtakingly good moments, and so does Buscemi. We just, uh, we're not quite finished with it yet. We've got uh, three episodes left, but in episode six, there's a moment with Steve Buscemi that just left my jaw on the floor. Like, I've, I've always loved Buscemi, but in this, he is just, he's just on fire in this. He's incredible. Like, I was, I was in tears. Very, very moving stuff. Incredible writing. I can't say enough about it. Try and, as a a recommend, try and put the ill will towards Louis C.K. aside and just appreciate it for what it is, because it is the, it's the best writing that I've seen on TV since fucking Deadwood. I, um, you know, and and the Louis C.K. one is really, it's one of those things where, yeah, you can't excuse what he did at all, but there are still times where, you know, I can't see a Clifford the Big Red Dog book without thinking about his whole spiel on Clifford the Big Red Dog, and it, it makes me laugh. Um, I'm just sorry. I just I, I I haven't even heard of this, and uh, and I love I I do I loved the Louis show, and um, he also credits uh, as a co-writer Annie Baker, who Annie Baker's plays are fucking amazing, and the one that he references, the flick, is really good. You would love the flick. I mean, you would love all her shit, but the flick is right up your alley. That's this. And honestly, so I think this is where Taylor made for me. Oh, I think, and this is, this is where I I've heard it because on WTF, Marin has talked about this show quite a bit. And I heard the Annie Baker episode and I'm, I'm really intrigued by her and her writing style. It seems like there's a a minimalist sort of thing to her plays, which I kind of dig. Oh man. But, but, it's it's minimalist, but it's also her plays are also so long and and detailed. Like the flick takes place in just in a in a, a in inside of a movie theater, like in the the where you would see it, um, and yet so much happens in that. Well, that's, that that's what I mean. That not a lot of pomp and circumstance. Yes. It's just allowing yeah. story to tell itself and these characters to to unveil themselves in a very naturalistic and minimalist way. And I'm. I I really want to see one of one of her plays. Oh man, and uh, like and it's the kind of thing too. Where, I mean, uh, I mean, I would agree. I totally see one of her plays, but um, her, her her like seriously, her stuff is so good. Just even just reading it, I think will will give you all all, all you know all you want, all you need. It, her writing is so good. Like I know that if if a play can make me either laugh or cry from reading it that then that's something and and her plays have done both uh it's it's fucking it's just so good it's just so good that's awesome that i i'm excited to try to start watching that i i think i think you and melissa are gonna love it awesome horace and pete's got it 
Well, I, I mean, whoever whoever turned in to tuned in to hear us talk about Jean Renoir, I'm sorry to keep them waiting for so long. But this, I guess, this is why we're doing the timestamps now. If I, if you wanted to skip ahead, indeed, indeed, <laughs> and what a, what a perfect segue. Uh, so let's talk about let's talk about the rules of the game. Let's talk about uh, the fact that this is written and directed, and uh, co- co-starring uh, Jean Renoir. Um, he has a few other films in the book. Let me tell you what they are. They are uh, Bodu Saved from Drowning, uh, 1932, A Day in the Country from 1936, Grand Illusion, uh, which is the only other Renoir film that I've seen, and uh, The Golden Coach. Those are the other movies of his in the book. Uh, before we delve into uh, the cast really quick, Renoir, where, where, what's your familiarity with his stuff? Well, this is it. This is the this first is one of his that I've seen. And um, I, I believe you chose this one. I went on a, a long tirade of choosing. I think I chose like our next three episodes coming up after this, and we had a gap to fill. So I was like, Adam, you need to... It's, it's well, you know... And- Go ahead Here's, and just pull something random. Surprise me! So and you you wh- you definitely did that. I I did that. I don't want to. I really don't. Um, this is not the first time that I've picked something for the for the pod, uh, for the sole purpose of trying to switch it up. Right, pick something old or foreign or both in this case. Um, just so that we're not, you know, you'll you'll hear it later in my little my little thesis statement. But you know, trying to keep it away from just you know, masturbatory. I love this movie. Um, so, so let's try something new, try, trying something new. Um, so and it's great. So, I, I'm going to say I did. I definitely didn't regret watching it. I'm, I'm glad that I can now tick the, the Renoir box. I've seen one of his and excited to see more, especially grand illusion. I was actually, when you said Renoir, I was surprised you didn't go with that one, but I guess that would be, I mean, that's the one that everybody knows, right? Well, well, I think we'll we'll get into that in a second. Um, so let's talk about quickly who who's in it, and I'm gonna say names, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm just gonna say names, and then when we kind of talk about the plot, which I'm gonna almost read verbatim from Wikipedia because it gets a little convoluted. Um, we'll, we'll get into that. Then. So we have so we have Nora Gregor who plays Christine, uh, Paulette Dubost as Lisette, Marcel uh, Dalio as Robert. Roland uh, uh, Totain as Andre, uh, Jean Renoir plays Octave, uh, Mila Pirelli plays Genevieve, um, and then I, I got some others here too. I got Julienne Corette plays Marceau, uh, Gaston Modo plays Schumacher, not Schumacher, which is how I would want to say it, but Schumacher, um, Anne Mayen plays Jackie, uh, Pierre Magnier plays the general. And the last one I had was Pierre Ney as Monsieur de Saint Aubin. Anybody else? I mean, there's just a lot of names I just read, but and there's a lot of guests I didn't mention either. But I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. I mean, I think I think I, the only other person I would call out. Did you say Eddie Dubray? I did not. Okay, I would just call out Eddie Dubray as uh, Corniel. He's the, the butler at the, the big chateau where uh, the bulk of the action takes place. And I'll just, I'll come out and I'll say it right now. He's he's my unsung hero and we'll we'll get into the cheeky reason why as we go through the movie. I love it. I love it. So uh, in terms of accolades, um, none to speak of, in ter- but in terms of its initial release. Now let's, maybe let's take a second and, and talk about uh, that. The initial release of this film. Um, basically... 
panned across the board. Uh, the the original audiences in France who saw this did not like it. Um, uh, Jean Renoir kind of edited it to, to he, he he tried to cut himself out of as much of the movie as possible. He thought that his performance was part of the reason why people didn't like it. Um, but then it has this resurgence kind of after at the World War II is kind of coming to an end and it's now being viewed in a different light. And and so I, I want to bring this back to accolades because I, I, I would like to I want to start with with this. We, I know we do list list to your thing and I'm not stepping on your toes, but I sight and sound. Obviously, every every 10 years will do this. The, their their critical best films of all time. Is this your list? I don't I don't want to step on your toes. Yeah, I, I, I have a, I have a thing that I'm gonna do with sight and sound. But you go ahead and continue. Well, I just every year. Okay, I'll leave it at this. Every year since 1952, it has been in the top ten. Now, where in the top ten has changed, but if you can't tell by the sound of my voice, that is fucking just crazy to me. This film considered one of the ten best films ever made for the last going on 70 years uh, in terms of from doing the, the poll and I something tells me that next year when they do it again it probably will be on there too um, uh, Roger Ebert did one of his great reviews for the movie he 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 loved it he mentioned how you couldn't see it properly at first and then and then sh- he shouts out Criterion saying like what a lovely restoration you did which is always fun we always like to shout out Criterion uh, whenever we can um it is not on the IMDb Top 250. It is uh, currently has a 96% critical and 90% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So, yeah. So, this is usually the point where I ask you, Adam, do you like lists? I I love lists. I love lists. I love lamp. And, uh, yeah. So, you you kind of tipped it a little bit, uh, not knowing what direction I was going, which which is fine. You know, we, we, we have a soft outline, but I, we like to keep it fresh, keep each other on our toes. I, I didn't know yeah. where you were going with it. Oh, it's fine. We're on the same wavelength. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we have that sort of unspoken connection. Uh, yeah. It's all right. I'll stop there. I won't make it Kindred weird. Kindred spirits. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. You got it. You got it. Uh, so, yeah, sight and sound, as you said, uh, every every decade, every 10 years, they'll do, you know, the greatest films of all time. They'll do a, a critics and a director's poll. And and as you said, it's never not been on the list. Um, so I, I thought it'd be fun to kind of compare and contrast the original list, 1952, with the last one that they did, 2012. And we can kind of look at its placement on both lists. So originally, uh, their top 10 was actually, they cheated a little bit. It was actually a top 12, was the, the original list in 1952. So starting at the ties. top. Yeah, it had, a, it had like a bunch of ties on it, which I won't, I won't take the time to break down all the ties. But uh, right at, the, at number 12, there's a film from 1931, a Rennie Claire film called Le Million. Which is a, it seems like a kind of somewhat screwball comedy about the search for a missing lottery ticket. I don't know. I've never heard of it before looking up this list. I don't know if you had. I've only seen one Rene Claire film and it. it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rules of the Game was at number 11. It was, they call it number 10, but there was like a three-way tie at number 10, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number 10 was Brief Encounter, the David Lean, Noel Coward film. Uh, number... 
Nine was The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Le Jour, Le Jour Célive. I'm probably butchering that, whatever. Uh, Marcel Karn film, which actually was, was like this film. It was also banned in France. Um, and it was kind of like, it seemed like a somewhat of a police procedural. It was a guy locked in his, he locked himself in a room after killing his girlfriend. And he's like recounting the story of how he got to that point while the police are trying to break in the door. It sounds really interesting. It's also from 1939, like the rules of the game. Uh, next we have greed, which we've, you know, we've (laughs) danced around that film quite a bit on this show. Hopefully we'll do it this season. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, next we have Louisiana story, which Again, I, not having seen it, but reading about it, it was just an oil drilling propaganda film. A lot of people actually confused it for a documentary at the time. And this is from like 1948. Uh, like I said, standards and tastes were different in the fifth, very different in the fifties. Very true. Uh, then we have uh, D.W. Griffith's follow-up to Birth of a Nation with Intolerance, which is in the book. Yep. Uh, number four is Battleship Potemkin, which I, yeah, okay. I, I, you still haven't seen that, right? That is correct. Yeah, that's a great silent movie. Uh, number three is The Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin film. Yeah. Number two is another Charlie Chaplin film that we covered last week, City Lights. There you go. And the number one was the Vittorio De Sica film, Bicycle Thieves, which I know very little about, but I am very excited to see. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. I agree. So that's, there you go. That's the original Sight and Sound list from 1952. So here's their latest one from 2012. Number 10 is Eight and a Half, another one that we covered on the show. Yeah. Yeah. That gets a pretty pretty solid meh from both of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And let me tell you, like five minutes into Rules of the Game, I was getting Eight and a Half flashbacks. In fact, that's that's literally like halfway down my first page of notes. I, I had, in the margin, I wrote eight and a half. Nice. Uh, Passion of Joan of Arc does appear on the list again at number nine. Uh, it, it it's one of those ones that had been on and off, on and off. Uh, number eight is the Man with a Movie Camera. Mm-hmm. Number seven, The Searchers. Okay. Number six, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Kind of no surprise right. there. Number five is Sunrise, Song of Two Humans. Have you seen that? No, I, I, I have it, I, but I haven't, I, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, number four is Rules of the Game, so it's, it's still very much in the top five of this list. Uh, number three, Tokyo Story. Number two, Citizen Kane. And number one, Vertigo. Yeah. Which, again, we did, we did quite a long thing on our Vertigo show about changing appreciations of film and whether films have been overhyped and such, which is definitely something we're going to cover on the show. Yeah. Well, and also just, just to mention with the sight and sound list in 72, 82 and 92, it was the second ranked film only behind citizen Kane. Yeah. Like what, what, what is happening? What, what are we doing in the world? That's not. Yeah. So yeah, why don't you, why don't you try I say try to walk us through the plot, and then we'll see if we can't figure out why Sight and Sound love this film so much. Okay, so here we go. 
um, we we open up and uh, we get like a news broadcast and we are told that this uh, this uh, aviator named Andre has just broken the record of flying across the Atlantic and he, he lands to much acclaim, but he's pretty pissed because he finds out from uh, his friend Octave that uh, Christine wasn't there. Um, we find out that he is basically in love with her and and basically admits over the radio, I did this for a woman and she's not here. Uh, boo-hoo. Um, Christine is listening to this radio broadcast of him uh, with her maid, Lisette, and um, she's like, why didn't you go? And he's like, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't really want to. I don't, I'm not in love with him. Um, and she is in, she's married. I believe she's married uh, to, uh, to Robert, who is a rich guy um, who he himself uh, is uh, seen, uh, has a mistress named Genevieve. Um, but then he decides, he, he kind of, ha- the line is really weird, but he has this epiphany. I actually, I've decided to basically recommit to my wife, so I can't see you anymore. But, in, but also invites this Genevieve and a whole bunch of other people to his, uh, his fancy estate uh, out in the country. And uh, that's where we sort of get the, the B plot of this, which is uh, we have Marceau, who is this scamp um, who has been trying to poach rabbits. And uh, Schumacher, who's sort of running the grounds, is like, ah, you get out of here, Marceau. And Robert's like, no, 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 I like the cut of his jib. I'm going to give you a job. And so they talk for a little bit. And then... There's just a bunch. It's just a lot of gallivanting around. We meet these other people coming in. Um, uh, the general and um, uh, uh, oh god, other people who I, I there's uh, so Saint, many names Saint, I'm not even gonna try. Saint Albin and the general. Those are the ones that seem to have these like almost chorus-like conversations off to the side where they'll kind of yeah. give their opinion of what's happening. Exactly, exactly. And everything seems to be going fine the first night. Andre also gets invited, um, the, I, kind of to the chagrin of Christine. Um, but he shows up, and everybody's really nice to him, including Christine. And the first night seems to go off kind of without a hitch. And the next day, they go hunting. A uh, lot of fucking hunting. I mean, Jesus Christ on the hunting. Um, and then they come back, and then they have this... They, ha- they do this little skit, se- series of sketches, and... Um, then a bunch of stuff comes out that uh, at, while they're hunting, Christine sees um, Robert talking to Genevieve, and he's actually trying to leave her for good. But she's like, hold me one more time. But Christine sees it, so now she's pissed. And no, so now she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I like, that I'm in love with Andre, even though I don't think she really is. But Andre finds this out, and he's like, oh, that's amazing. Um, but, and as that whole thing's happening, Marceau is making a move on Schumacher's girl, Lisette, and she's like, well, I kind of like this Marceau guy, and so she's kind of letting it happen. Um, and then there's like a, a shit ton of chaos happening where Christine leaves the play, and Octave is in a bear suit, and uh, there's a fist fight between, I believe, I believe it's Robert and St. Aubin, uh, but then Andre comes involved, uh, gets involved later with that. Um, and then Christine and uh, Octave, they leave, they, get, they, they leave the thing, and we find out that even though Octave and, and um, Christine have known each other for a very long time, that, he, that she actually has loved him the whole time, and he's like, oh, great, we'll run away together. And so we get to this moment at the end where it looks like Octave, Octave is going to make off with, uh, with Christine, but that doesn't happen because Robert sort of hears it happen, and Octave's like, no, go, go to her. She's in the greenhouse. It'll be fine. And as this is happening, uh, Schumacher and Marceau have been fired. And as they're walking, they see Christine wearing the cape that Schumacher has bought for Lisette. So they both think Lisette is in there, that Lisette is being lascivious with somebody else. 
And so uh, um, Andre goes to find... Basically, it ends with fucking Schumacher shooting Andre and then covering it up as if it was just a, a terrible accident. You you did a, a monumental job with an unnecessarily complicated movie. Basically, so, everybody is fucking everybody or trying to fuck everybody, and then someone gets shot in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this, so this movie reminded me a lot of traditional three act comedy of manner plays. It's funny you mentioned um, Brief Encounter earlier. Like, I just recently rewatched uh, a Noel Coward play that I assigned for my students in one of my classes, Present Laughter. I'm very familiar with, I think, maybe his best play called Private Lives. And those, those comedy, and, and like, I also think of Oscar Wilde. Like, when I, when I read that The Rules of a Game is sort of a comedy of manners, the importance of being earnest is actually one of the first things that comes to my mind. And I, I expect more uh, I, m- more witty stuff. Definitely the people, uh, the upper crust, you know, um, who who definitely have uh, wealth. But this this the story is also like uh, you know French. I think historically is kind of where some a lot of farce comes from. Moliere, very very much well known for his farcical plays. So it's a comedy of manners, sure, but then it's also kind of throwing in the farce elements. And at times it works, but it's also, it's it's not it's it's not both enough. And so for me, it there's there's a huge disconnect in calling it a comedy of manners because I don't think it's really a comedy. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's overplay. It over well a lot of things. It overplays a lot of its hands. It's it isn't very funny. It it, it tries much too hard to be funny and many scenes overstay their welcome i mean i would actually be this is this is one of those things where i'd actually advocate for a shorter cut i'm i'm very interested to see what the 90 minute or the 85 minute cut looks like but i I juxtapose that with feeling like there are certain things that feel sort of half-baked and underdeveloped like how the how do we get to all of them putting on this play or these this 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 variety show, and then who were all these people showing up to watch it? I'm sure that was something, or I hope anyway, that was something that was fleshed out in his the, the original cut. You know, their their first assembly or or whatever they showed to distributors was something like three hours, which yeah, I can't imagine sitting through that, but well, and, as and, a curiosity. And, and, it's it's and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the abruptness of going to that the night where they're do, where they're putting on the show because again this is this is why this feels like everything from the opening of the movie all the way up until bef- before they go to the estate that's act 1 act 2 is that first day and then the hunting uh, uh, at the estate that's uh, that's act 2 and then act 3 is starting with the the skitty stuff all the way through the end like it follows such a traditional three act format that in in the world of a play you know you do curtains down intermission you come back and now it's the night of the skit it makes it makes more sense as a play versus just like it's it's like it's one night and then boom curtains open and here are a bunch of people doing a weird dance and Octave in a fucking bear suit like it it's funny in the sense of like well where the fuck did this come from but it's not I don't know I don't 
I, I, it seems like more of like a cheap laugh. I don't even know. I, it just was really, really baffling to me. Well, we're, we're talking about the film on a very sort of macro level right now, but it, I'm, it's great that you talked about it in three. Do you want to go through and let's, let's talk about it in, you know, act one, two, and three. Well, and so I think act one, act one has all the makings of what could be a good movie. I'm, I'm interested in the, I'm interested in the relationships. I'm curious to know. Okay. So, so the, 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 you know, Andre loves Christine, but Christine is with Robert, but Robert also has this thing with Genevieve, but now Robert's thinking he wants to recommit to Christine. I mean, and, and even though it's, it's a bit, it's a bit ridiculous, but the idea that Andre would drive himself into a tree is, is, it's kind of funny, but also like, wow, this guy really is in love with this woman. And, I, and I'm not going to lie, that's, I mean, I was kind of bemused by the opening and people making a big deal about him crossing the Atlantic, and I don't want to take anything away from what a triumph that must have been to do something like that in that day and age with the technology and resources and things like that, but they do make a big deal of calling out, well, Lindbergh did it 12 years ago. That's a, that's a long time for it to still be a big deal, don't you think? You know, I the the one thought I had about it was I and I get like that's really like at, with a lot of records, you know, I, you you stand back and go, that's cool, but why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like and I and I get like aviation's pretty new, you know, and and uh, you know the you know, a, a, a solo flight across the Atlantic and it in record time and like, yeah, that's great, but I'm also, you know, like, how how dull? Like, what, Jesus, what did you do? I mean, you know, like, I, I have other questions, but I'm not necessarily impressed by it. Yeah, definitely. And but, then when it comes to, it, like you he's mentioned... Like, he's, a fun, he's some fucking national hero because he flew across the Atlantic. Like, I don't, and again, I know Lindbergh was too, but I, 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 I hear you. I totally agree with you. Yeah, no, it is a big deal. But 12 years later, that's that's not such a big deal. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that, that's I, like that's like that's almost a whole generation right there. But yeah, yeah then, then then when it comes to him crashing the car, it seems very deliberately crashing the car, and I don't know, trying to kill himself and Octave. Uh, that's on. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, the movie descends into melodrama at that point, and I it did. I my attention did start to waver slightly, and I'm trying to be patient, and I get it, like. Aesthetics and sensibilities very very different in the 30s, and and you come to a scene like that, and it's hard in today's sort of day and age and and the way that that films have progressed and the and the way that we look at dramatic films to take a moment like that seriously. I don't know. It's kind of yeah. rambling. I don't know if I'm quite making sense. No no no. I I totally get you. And that's and I I you know I I don't want to go back to macro again but i you know doing doing some of the research and reading about sort of the uh you know analysis years later about about the film right i saw things like um uh it's a commentary on moral callousness uh that the the rabbit hunt scene is is uh showing the senseless death of war and that um uh that it's also talking about um uh the the humanism of of octave and and i I read all this after the fact, and I'm going, man. Sometimes film scholars just have way too much fucking time on their hands because. And, and we've we've definitely discussed this on on Breathless and Eight and a Half. 
yeah, there's just a sense of like, if you, this, this is not really a story of moral callousness before World War II. Like, sure, it's about rich people uh, being, I mean, being all fucking like whiny before World War II, sure. But like, I don't, again, like, it's not satirical. This, this isn't, and I think you're right, it's presented as melodrama, but not, not to the point of being like, they're in on the joke, right? And it's, so it's, I, I mean, if, if you want to take a step back and look at it that way, sure, and maybe that would have helped me out, but I, I don't think that's correct. I, I, just brief tangent, I was listening to a podcast uh, of all, of, on all films, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's Dogtooth, and what I loved about it was how they kept talking about how allegorical it was, right? That here's, here's what's actually happening in the film, but also here are the many different ways that you could, you could, you could view it, right? And, and what, you, what it could be saying. And a movie like that is, is made to be to intentional. I mean, Yorgos Lanthimos said, I made this to be vague. I want people to have their own interpretations of what happens, of, of what, you, what you think the movie is about. This, I, I'm sorry, there's, there's, th- this has got a very traditional plot. We, it, it's, it's about these people and their quote unquote problems. Um, which of course, I get that it's silly to see them all behaving like kind of like children at the end of it, but also then somebody dies. So like, what, what really are we trying to get from this movie? I don't know. Uh, well, sticking with the idea of moral callousness for a second. And I'm, I mean, we can go back to trying to, to analyze each act, you know, as, as, as individual pieces, if you want to, but you, you bringing up the moral callousness thing, just, I, I was thinking about this, the, the second the movie ended, but a lot of the themes and situations that this movie explores, moral callousness among them, I think was done better in even something, I'm going to make a wild comparison now, burn after reading. Well, I think of it. Like everybody's disagree. sleeping with everybody in that, and you know, there, there, everybody is. There's a sort of one-upmanship about it. And there's also some very clueless characters, as there are in this. I don't know. I think, I think the Cohen brothers kind of outdid Renoir, well, and I definitely think that Altman outdid him. Yes, yes, and and so again, in, in doing the research as we do. Clearly, this movie influenced a lot of people, and I'm glad you mentioned Altman because obviously there are really heavy shades of this in Gosford Park. Uh, not entirely, because that becomes a murder mystery, but you totally get, and I, I can totally see the comparison in Burn After Reading. And I, and I don't know how many times I've said this in the hundred plus episodes we've done, but this isn't the 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 guiding light of our podcast. Our the book, A Thousand One Movies You Must See Before You Die. It's not a this is not a film history book, right? This is not telling us the history of film. In a way it is, but that's not what the book is. The book is, hey, if you're going to only see 1001 movies in your life, these these are them. And and it's trying to play that balance because I get historically this is an important film in terms of what it inspired because I'm watching this and I totally get shades of of all kinds of movies being inspired by this. And so drawing the comparison to the Coen brothers and drawing comparisons to Altman are right. Those are absolute concrete things to notice. But that doesn't mean that the rules of the game is a good movie because it is not. No, it, it not. definitely, 
It definitely doesn't. I mean, there are there are good things in it. I mean, yes. The, a lot of the camera moves, and they talked about them being sort of revolutionary for the time. Those those hallway shots with the long depth of field. I I love that. I love shots my, like my, that. The fucking I my go bananas. Favorite shot. My favorite shot is early in the movie, and uh, I think it's when it's the it's like the morning Octave comes over to see Christine, and the camera is on them, and then the camera pans to Lisette who's futzing with the curtains, and then it pushes in on her. It's like, and that was smooth. It looked so good. It looked like there's no way in hell they filmed that in 1939. It was really nice. Well, there's a there's a pan that I love later in the movie where Marceau and Schumacher are having their chase. That's and the, the other the one. pan across the, the, that sort of entry hall as, as they're fighting. I, incredible. Like, knocked my yeah. socks off. I was like, why can't, the whole movie be as good as this shot well, I, I think that's... the i think the uh the the story the characters the dialogue it all undercuts what a revolutionary film this could have been and it, and it seems like we're in the minority because people do view this as as a revolutionary film i guess we're got we'll go macro again with it but I mean, I don't, I don't get it. It's got to be, it's another one of these cases, like Breathless, like Eight and a Half, I keep coming back to those, where we're, as film scholars, as serious fans of films, we are told that you should like this, you should appreciate it for its place in history. And sure, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, it has a place in history, but as you said, it's another thing again to be like, it's actually a good movie. Yeah. I, and as I, I said, mean, I, I don't. I don't regret. I don't regret at all having watched it. No, because yeah, now I, I know that it doesn't yeah. live up to the hype. And and especially especially uh, it, like it, r- r- comparing this to Breathless, like I ended Breathless mad. I was not a happy camper after Breathless. This one, I was more. I was more confused. And then as I, as I kept doing, you know, the research, like again. Going back to the the constant appearance on the site and sound poles, I instead instead of being mad at Breathless, I kept being more like I just I just confused. Like how is this film up there with Vertigo and Citizen Kane? And granted, this this these aren't our list, but you know you trust that you know you put enough critics in a room, they're gonna they're gonna spit out a list of movies that are generally pretty good. And I just don't, I just can't see it with this one. Yeah, something must have happened in the 50s when it finally got to the States and people started to see it, you know, being probably shown in very small art house films or, or shown on college campuses and things like that and people appreciating. I, I would love to have a conversation with the people that love this movie. It, the, not, not just ordinary people, but the auteurs. Yeah. People like Altman or Scorsese or, or anybody that, that loves it and saw it as an influence and go, why is it an influence though? Like I get it. If you want to latch onto, if you want to latch onto, say the way that it's shot, or you want to, that that would be one thing. But to to say that it was important, I don't know. I'm not going to try and put words in anybody's mouth. But if if the argument is it's important because of the fact that it did sort of tweak the nose of the French aristocracy and it, and it was banned. And then, you know, during Nazi Germany, when the film was re-released again, you know, sorry, during the, the Nazi occupation of France, when it was re-released, it was banned again by the Germans. Just because it's banned doesn't mean it's important. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, there's I, been all kinds of shit that's been banned. Uh, fucking Abel Ferrara's Driller Killer was banned. It's not a fucking good movie. It's not an important movie. It's important in the sense that it was Abel Ferrara's first movie, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and, and you know, in terms of talking about the, th- I mean, every once in a while, there'd be a nice, a nice one-liner, and not, not like even like a zinger, but something that got said that was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, and, and like, some of them were funny. You know, there was a, a line, you know, friendship with a man when pigs have wings. Like, ha, I get it. And the two of them were talking. I, I think that's that's funny. And um, and then there's sort of like these poignant, not poignant, but things that could be seen that way. You know, the awful thing about life is this. Everyone has their reasons. And it's like, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty good line. That's a great line to have in a movie. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a hand there's a there's a handful of dialogue that really rings true and some of it is very bittersweet and cynical which i i love i love cynical writing uh there's another one where it's like you can fight hatred but you can't fight boredom that one's great yep there's there there is a lot of biting i don't even want to call it satire because i think that's giving it too much credit but yeah no the, the everybody has their reasons and and the when pigs fly that's it's all really good but it's not enough is the problem yeah yeah. And and this is leaving aside some of the things that have not dated very well. Um, and I'm not going to repeat some of the words they use. Uh, there's, there's a lot some... of casual racism in this movie. Yeah. Yes, there is. Um, and that's 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 no good. Um, I, I hate just chalking it up to the time. But 1939, I, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't every everything the cook says is pretty fucking awful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Although he, I, I mean, like the cook says one thing about they ask him if he got the sea salt, and he's like, "Oh, what, hold on, I have the line here." I oh, just, it's something about a picky eater's an obsession. Yeah, he Is goes that the line because that that one's yes. quite good. Oh damn it! I I I typed. Oh, diets I can accept, but not obsessions. Yeah. That okay. That I will concede that is the one good thing that comes out of the cook's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. But as, sure. as far for as sure. as as biting funny poignant dialogue i mean during the the chaos of the the final act and uh, robert is is talking to his sort of head butler the the corniel character uh and Schumacher and marceau are chasing each other all over the place there's been the fight with saint Aubin, and he and he, he corniel comes into the room and he says would you would you do something would you put an end to this farce and he just looks him dead in the face and says which one that I was like, that guy, that guy fucking gets it, and that's why he's my unsung hero is for that single line of dialogue because I can't find anything else that good to latch onto. So I, I so speaking of unsung heroes, I, I my I kind of have two, but again I'm not really you know this I'm not such a big fan of the movie. So um, I did write I did write that Coco Chanel did the costumes for this. Yeah, I, I saw that too. That's pretty good. I mean, Which the is, costumes didn't really... I, I mean, my eye isn't naturally drawn to that, but I mean, they looked bummer, fine. You know, the black and white, I, I'm sure, I, you know, not with the suits so much, but with the, the gowns and the dresses, I'm sure they were I'm sure they were lovely. I would have loved to have known the colors and all that stuff. It's, it's hard to obviously tell all that. Um, but honestly, my unsung hero is... My unsung hero is Jean Renoir the actor because i actually really liked him as octave oh you're you're kidding me i thought he was now, terrible no i i i more than 
more than almost anybody else in the movie, maybe besides Lisette, um, who I also thought was fun. Um, I just, I didn't, I didn't buy, what am I trying to say? I didn't think that he was playing a caricature. I, I, I liked what he was I especially I really liked that scene where he's out in the back like basically talking about how he's a failure and like he didn't quite live up to this potential and I just I really there was something underneath it that I really enjoyed and I, I mean throughout yes but also particularly in that in that moment well I think that I think that is a good scene I don't think he's I don't think he's particularly grace in any scene the writing in that one is is better than most other scenes and i i love a symmetrical shot so that that shot of him stood at the top of the staircase that's that's probably my favorite shot in the movie it's beautiful yeah it's a good shot but i don't know man i what i enjoy more about renoir's performance is the sort of story behind it he couldn't find anybody to cast in that role i think one of his producers or his 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 brother who was his producing partner that he started the company with just said why don't why don't you just do it because you can't find anybody and then when they tried to sell the movie and get distribution through galmont the big french film company uh the producer kept telling him hey man you need to you're not good in this you need to cut back more of your scenes and give more scenes to to the women to the, the women playing Lisette and 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 christine and he would add more scenes in of himself which it sounds like he took out in the 85 and 90 minute cuts but yeah. he would he was. It was a big fuck you to Galmont going. You don't like me in this. Well, I'm going to put myself in it more. See that kind of attitude. I I like, but I I don't think it was worth it. Well, I I I, I liked him in the movie, but it's you know it and it's it's it, but it's it's also kind of tough too because at the end it's the end of the movie comes and it's really like I don't know if I care about anybody, and I and I know I say that a lot, but it's like we get to the end and I feel like everybody's been kind of a dick or a double crosser or withholding. And, and then like, I, I don't know if we're supposed to, I mean, and then, and then they just cover up the fact that this guy was shot and they just chalk it up to an accident. And I mean, maybe that's, that's the, that that's the commentary, right? Look, you know, the rich can just do whatever they want, chalk it up to, eh. but I, I don't know. It just, it rings so false to me. I definitely understand coming at it. There are, very few likable people in this movie. The one person that I would say that I do feel sorry for is the Schumacher character because we we get established pretty early on that, well, not even very early on. I guess it's kind of revealed as we go through that that he is married to Lisette and they're being kept apart. You think they're being kept apart, maybe by, you know, their their employers, but it also sounds like Lisette is not that invested in the relationship. So there's a yeah. sort of there's a, there's a one-way street that's happening there, and then she's fooling around with Marceau, and he's you know he, he's one of these guys that's doing his best. He's got a he's got preconceived notions about Marceau anyway for being the poacher. Yeah, and it turns out that his suspicions of him are correct. I mean, I do, I I think he is a very tragic character, who who makes a lot of mistakes and does definitely, obviously I think goes too far at the end. But I think. Uh, I, I'm trying to play devil's advocate and trying to see things from his point of view. I, I see him as a man who has been pushed too far. Oh yeah, no, and I, I, yes, I get that too. It's just, you know, that he does get he does get pushed too far, but obviously that that too far results in the death of of Andre, which, you know, well, you didn't have to shoot anybody, did you? 
Yeah, yeah, no, there, there was definitely a different way to go about it, but I like how you, you bring up how everything is kind of swept under the rug. Yeah, I was kind of, I was definitely taken aback about everybody just kind of says goodnight and goes to bed, and then St. Alban and the and the general are stood there going, St. Alban said, ah, that's funny, there's a new word for accident, and the general is still, you know, very upper crust and, and wanting to, I don't know, I don't know if he's wanting to see the best in people or just believe that the, the upper class is always right and dignified, but talking about how classy Robert is, you know, real yeah. class. Like, yeah. Jesus Christ, these people so deluded. They don't, which they I, don't I make guess, men like know, that anymore. Exactly. And like I said, I mean, different sensibilities, different times. I mean, I could I could definitely see there being a reaction to the way that the, the upper class, the aristocracy are, are treated and, and satirized in this film, but flat out banning it just seems like using a sledgehammer to kill a fly to me. Well, and, and I guess I, I just wonder, I, you know, it's just fun to sort of think back, you know, who, who's, who, you know, in the, in the French government saw this film and was just so utterly offended by it. Like, no, we cannot show this. People cannot see this movie. Like, it, it's I don't think it's even that damning. Yeah, well, I think I think in, in this case in particular, we do have to look at the world around the film, the eve of World War II. Everybody in France was kind of on edge after the, the Munich agreements uh, where Germany was allowed to through through inaction of some of the allied nations and that massive mammoth dickhead chamberlain in britain who was our prime minister at the time yeah i saw uh, darkest you know, they were allowed yeah yeah they were they were allowed to aggressively sort of expand their so-called empire and france were definitely nervous about that and so i guess trying to play devil's advocate and see it from the french government's point of view as well we don't need somebody undermining the upper class of of our nation because i mean they're the ones that are going to be calling shots and leading us into this war if if and when we need to go to war you know the the, the generals and the, the yeah and businessmen and all that that sort of thing i don't know i'm again just spit kind of spitballing and trying to imagine what tense times there were in france in 1939 no for sure and but i and again it's hard well, well, I don't personally find this movie funny. I do feel like, you know, to call it a comedy of manners, this does feel like, you know, comedy for the time. I, you know, just so surprised to, to, to ban a movie that essentially is trying. What I would guess is a movie that's tr- kind of trying to alleviate the tension of being on the brink of war. Why not go and have a laugh? I, I, it t- I don't know. I, I don't know. I just yeah. I, allow I, allow your allow yourself to be poked fun at. You know, because yeah. it's maybe it's all in good jest I, I don't know i'm sure renoir had slightly more sinister sort of notions of wanting to call out these aris the the, the aristocrats that the fucking yeah. the bastards in control of all the money and the power and whatnot for sure for sure but yeah man i i don't get it i'm trying i'm trying real fucking hard here and i think after this and breathless i gotta say french cinema before 1965 just does not do it for me man well, and I, that's kind of, I, I, in my little wrap up statement I got here, I, you know, I, I, I do mention some of the, the French directors we've talked about so far. Um, do you, if you have any last minute, any last minute comments about the rules of the game? No, no, no. If you, if you're ready to, if you're ready to get to the end, I'm, I'm definitely good with that. Cause I think, 
I don't I don't know that I can find anything else other than I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to read what I wrote down here. When Ian and I started this podcast, we made a very conscious effort to not just pick films that we love, but rather to further expand our knowledge of film. And whether that be by genre, decade, or style, I feel like we've done a great job of varying our selection. And when it comes to French films, we've talked about the greats, Truffaut, uh, Godard, Melville, Melier, Varda, and Clouseau, and now adding Renoir to the mix. And I will not argue that Renoir is a talented director. I found a lot of the camera movement and the rules of the game to be quite good. And I, th- I think Grand Illusion is a very interesting and engaging film. And I also understand how film critics adore this film. That love is not lost on me. However, this film falls flat. It is hard to care about most of the characters as we don't know what they want. I disagree with scholars that say this is a film about humanism or moral callousness or the, or the disparity in class. But if you want to view that film through one of those prisms, be my guest. And honestly, that probably helps upon rewatch. But at the end of the day, this is bone dry farce that fails to draw laughs or evoke sympathy from me. And therefore I think that the rules of the game should not be in the book. That's very, very well put, sir. I like the, the bone dry farce comment there. That's very good. Uh, mine is not mine is not as eloquent, and it's kind of short and to the point. Robert Altman was quoted as saying, The rules of the game taught me the rules of the game. And I believe that Mr. Altman was selling himself exceedingly short when he said that, because Gosford Park deserves to be in the book more than the rules of the game. Is that your replacement? I, I'm torn between that and... As I mentioned earlier, Burn After Reading, because Burn After Reading I, is one of, it's number two in my top five Coen Brothers movie, which I'm sure some people see as batshit crazy. That's fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with it, I'm going to own it. Fargo is not in my top five, which again, I'm sure I'm committing all kinds of film sins okay. well, by let's having not, let's, Burn After you Reading. Don't have to, you don't have to commit like film suicide right now. Let's not, let's not talk about how wrong your Coen top five is. Let's just stick with your replacement for now. <laughs> well, let's yeah, let's let's do that because I'm sure I'll find another way to get Burn After Reading into the book to replace something else. So yes, Gosford Park is my replacement, which is great. And and I that was my recommend when we did when we talked about Nashville. So um, it was, but you didn't replace Nashville with Gosford Park. I believe you replaced it with Traffic. I did. I did. Would you like to know my replacement for the rules of the game? I absolutely would. So I, I wanted to, I, 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 I thought a long time about this and I couldn't quite come up with an answer. So I did, what, what do you call it? You call it Netflix analog. And I stood in front yeah. of my wall. I stood in front of my wall and I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked and I was like, oh, I'm going to rewatch this. And so the same, the same night that I watched the rules of the game, I rewatched Amelie. And I think Amelie should replace the rules of the game. I'm keeping it French and I'm keeping it sweet. I'm keeping it light and fun. And I forget how much I kind of just adore that movie. It's got so much style and it's so fun. And I think Audrey Tattoo is great. I didn't realize that the guy that she falls in love with, uh, who plays Nino, is Matthew Kasovitz, who directed Lahane, which is just a really good movie. Um, and I just had I just had such a blast rewatching it. I think all the shit with the gnome is great. 
everything, all the, the, the mystery she's trying to set up. I just, I had a blast rewatching that movie and I think it's good. And I think it should replace this okay movie. Well, I think you're also writing a wrong there because Amelie was in the book. I think it, it survived a couple editions. Yeah, it like, definitely well, a couple was revisions. In, yeah, it was in, in the first edition for sure, but it, it definitely fell out at some point. I believe it was at least in the second edition as well, because that's the one that I had. Yeah, the, the, sounds... the first, the first one that I had, the 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 great Jack Nicholson cover. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I you know it's not thematically it's not similar, but I I think it's so much more fun. And and again, I said this before too. The 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 book is so 30s and 40s and 50s heavy, and I don't think that all of those movies need to be in the book. And good and uh, um uh. Renoir's in the book like five times. And uh, again, you know, who knows how far this experiment of ours is going to last. Grand Illusion, you know, just early, you know, I'll tell you this right now. It should be in the book. And when we get to it, we'll talk about why. But like, yeah, take, take out the rules of the game and put in something that was just really fun. And it came, and 2001 was a really important year for me because that was when I really started getting into like film history and stuff. And, and one of my favorite all time best original screenplay category years. Cause he had that, he had Amelie monsters ball, Gosford park, Gosford park, um, uh, Royal Tenenbaums and memento. So, so there you go. We're giving up, we're giving it up for 2001 on this episode. Writing Boom. it wrong because I think I think I think the aughts have been sort of hard done by in newer yes. editions of the book. Yes, they have. So there I, you go, man. I guess I guess we should also say I don't know. I'll I'll play the PC card here. We mentioned a lot of the casual racism in the movie. If you're if you're gonna watch this movie, either based on our recommendation or not, you can find it in a couple of places. It's on Canopy. It's on Criterion. Uh, as you mentioned, the the hunting scene. I mean, if you're if you're a little sensitive to that. I will warn you, it is fucking long, really protracted. That last shot where you really watch that rabbit die I, is that completely was, un... It's, yeah. That sucked. It's fucking unnecessary, man. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that in the longer cut of Andre, of, uh, of Andre Rublev, you really don't need to see that horse go through that shit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you're, um, a, little, if you're a little sensitive to animal cruelty, just throw it out there right now, like... Yeah, yeah, man, it's fucked up. It's really fucked up. Yeah, it is. Because they it killed. Is. I read the. I was reading that the the second unit or the B unit or whatever. They killed hundreds of animals for that sequence. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Another to- reason. It, another hey, reason it shouldn't be in the book. The proof is on the screen, though, man. It's on the screen. They fucking nailed it, bro. That's well. That's that's what people in the fifties when they rediscovered this movie would have you believe. I guess, I guess. So, hey, that's what, but hey, that, here's what two, two dudes in 2021 think of the rules of the game. But as always, we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know just how stupid we are for not liking the rules of the game. We, we encourage your criticism. So please find us and chat with us. Um, if you want to support the show or pick a movie for us to talk about, you can support us at patreon.com slash thousand and one by one. You can find us on Google play and Spotify and Apple and Stitcher and all of those wonderful places where you get podcasts. And tune in next week because holy shit, I'm going to, this is the only way I want to tease it because I really just want to tease it. There are three films that have ever won the big five at the Academy Awards, picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. We've discussed one of them on the show and that was, it happened one night. And next week we will talk about another one.
But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week.